I want to introduce to you someone you already know, uh, but someone that's near and dear to my life and has helped me to grow in the ministry. Uh, Larry is uh, a retired pastor. He's uh, a retired welder. He's a retired EMT, (laughs) retired school bus driver, firefighter, firefighter. Uh, and uh, uh, he has a lot of things to share. Please don't share them all this morning, okay? (laughs) But Larry and I have been to the other side of the world and back with the gospel message as we've worked with pastors in Kenya so many times, I can't remember how many times we've gone, uh, but it's, uh, he's a blessing to my life. And as we are uh, talking about a Christ-centered life and all the aspects that that has an impact on, we're going to talk this morning about money, even more sensitive than our last week's topic, okay? So uh, I, I've asked Larry to come and share a word of testimony with us. Yeah. Go ahead, brother. Yeah, thank you. Um, Dot and I were married in 1962 in Branson, Missouri, and back in those days, there weren't any theaters around, and when, uh, when school was back in session, they rolled up all the sidewalks and all the jobs went away, and there was no work until the next spring. It was terrible, and my father-in-law had accepted a job as a coach in uh, Columbus, Kansas, And uh, I was struggling with trying to find out how to serve the Lord and what he wanted me to do because I was saved uh, in Branson. And I got a call. I don't remember how that went because I I didn't have a phone. But somehow, um, we got word. Maybe they came. I don't know. Um, There's a job in Columbus, Kansas. And I went uh, to Columbus, Kansas with my family because I could get four hours of time and a half. I'd have a steady job for the first time. And what a joy it was. And so one Sunday morning, I uh, went over to the house where my father-in-law lived, which was our custom because he wouldn't let me not go to church. And he was, um, he was in, the, in, the kit, in the living room, and he was writing on a check and I, I was struggling with money I was struggling more with what to do with my money and I walked up and kind of peeped over the side and I noticed that his tithe was more than my monthly salary him and his wife Dot's mom and dad were both teachers there and he turned around and said Larry you can't outgive God So for reasons that were not spiritual, I decided I'd become a tither. I expected God to do things for me with money. Well, that didn't happen. But what did happen was I found for the first time I was capable of doing something that God required of me, and I could do it easily regardless of the cost because like in Nehemiah, Part of uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 10 says, In the joy of the Lord is your strength. I get joy. I get joy from giving. 
And I, uh, I was uh, struck by the song the choir sang, and I'll ask you, anybody here found him faithful? Thank you, Larry. Can you put that in the box? I'm afraid if I bend over there, I might not get up and be able to preach. would have to dismiss. All right. Some of you are thinking, oh, no, another sermon about money. Uh, but hopefully this will be something that hits home for you, something that drives home a point for you and uh, helps you to understand God's economy. And there's a lot in the scriptures about money. There's a lot in the scriptures about giving offerings to the Lord. We started off in Genesis with Cain and Abel, and they both gave to the Lord. Now, one of those sacrifices, one of those offerings was acceptable, and Abel's first fruits were accepted by God, but Cain's offering was unacceptable. I don't know all the reasons why it was unacceptable, but it was unacceptable. And because of that, there was envy and strife and jealousy and murder and uh, uh, all kinds of problems broke loose because offerings were received and offerings were rejected. Throughout the scriptures, we see this. I'm going to mention just a few of them just, just to jog your memory. Abraham, when he fought a battle against the kings that had taken his family away and he recovered them and had a lot of loot from the battle, he gave a tithe, a tenth, to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was like no other. He didn't have a beginning. He didn't have an end. He was kind of like he represented God. Then we have a situation where the Israelites were coming into the promised land and there was a great battle won at Jericho. The walls came tumbling down in a very unique and different style of warfare that no one had ever seen because God was fighting the battle and there was a great victory. But there was one in the number of uh, Israelites that took some of the booty himself. He took some of the gold. He took some of the silver. He took a fine robe and he hid it under his tent. It was supposed to all go to the Lord. But he kept it to himself. And then the Israelites went into battle again at a very small town called Ai. And there they suffered a terrible defeat by a much smaller force. And it was determined that AI had stolen from God and there were consequences. There were consequences for the nation. There were consequences for him and for his family. Men lost their life in battle because of his greed. He and his whole family lost their lives to atone for the sins that they had committed there. Um, there's, uh, there's other accounts in the, uh, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, about uh, how they had a, a free will offering to furnish and build the tabernacle. And the people gave and they gave and they gave, 
And finally, the leader said, stop, stop, you're giving too much. Have you ever heard anyone in this church say, stop, you're giving too much? I would long for that day. As good as our church is about giving, we've never had that situation where we had too much. I think it's clear in the scriptures that God knows how we give. He knows what we give. Uh, We see that in the book of Malachi, where people were uh, robbing God of his tithes and offerings. How they were robbing from the poor to enrich themselves. And uh, there's a New Testament teaching here where, and um, this is not our main text, but it's from Luke 21, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. I think it's going to come up on the screen. And there's a widow that has two mites. Now, I happen to have one of those mites that she put in the box. Oh, I don't know. It could be. And I'm going to start it over here and just let you all pass around. On one side is a mite of the time that the widow gave her offering. Uh, There's a a man that's a lot smarter than I am about coins. He's put his approval on this. And on the back side is a penny. And I'm going to just start this over here. And you can look at that. Again, this is not the main uh, part of the message, but this is free. But I have security guards at the back because that coin is mine, okay? All right. I would like it back, if nothing else, for the uh, second service today. Um, But Jesus and his disciples were watching as people put money into the offering box. Verse 1 of chapter 21 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's amazing. And we he contrasts that in so many different ways. Uh, there's another account in Matthew uh, chapter 20 where Jesus has an encounter with the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler, he wants to know how to gain the kingdom. And so Jesus tells him that he needs to sell all he's got and give it to the poor. But he just cannot let go because he's got so much. He's he's just the opposite of the widow that had the two small pennies that she put in the offering. And then after Jesus has this conversation with this rich young ruler, and he goes away sad because he just cannot give up what he loves so much. Jesus says in verse 20. 3 of chapter 19 of Matthew. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that sounds impossible. But if you understand the culture of the day and the situation of the day, the eye of the needle was not like a tailor's needle, okay? The eye of a needle was a gate. It was a gate that was opened at night so that when caravans came to the city, they did not have to camp outside. But they could not just come through the main gate. The main gates were closed and secured so that people would not come in riding camels and horses and and conquer the city. But the eye of a needle gate was a gate that was so small to get a camel through it, the the people in the caravan had to unload everything off of the camel where it's just the camel. And then the camel would get down on its knobby knees and it would crawl through this opening in the wall. And then they'd bring all the stuff back in. The idea is that we've got to get rid of our stuff or get rid of worshiping our stuff. One other account that I think is very applicable here is... uh, uh, I can get the right passage. Um, where Christ talks in 624 about serving two masters. So much of the time, we want to serve the Lord, but we also want to serve ourselves financially. And he's very clear here. These are the words of Christ again. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So difficult. Now, we're going to, our main text is going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is taking a different tone. And I come upon this passage to preach to you this morning with some degree of fear and trembling. Because in these words that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, there's a, there's a hint of prosperity, name it, claim it, theology, that I think is extremely difficult and it's a huge trap that many congregations fall into. It's a, it's a situation where they really, some of them put money up as their God. They put money as the master. And, and it's a situation where if you give and you do, then God's going to bless you. And that's some of what this passage is going to teach that Paul is writing. But the idea of it, where, where you get into problems, if you take that passage and hold it up all by itself, you might get the wrong idea. But when you hold it up against all the other passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that if God is going to prosper us, he prospers, he prospers us with purpose. 
And the purpose is not for me to live in luxury. The purpose is for me to reinvest into his kingdom, for the kingdom to grow, for the kingdom to prosper. And he uses the things that we give, and he gives us some guidelines here. Now, he's giving these guidelines to the church in Corinth, and I need to give you a little bit of background before we read these passages and look into them a little deeper. Paul had gone to Corinth on his second missionary journey, and he spent a year and a half at least at Corinth teaching and preaching the word, winning many converts over to, uh, uh, to Christianity from Judaism as well as uh, Gentiles from their pagan worship. And so he established the church there. Now, there, I understand from scholars there's more letters to the Corinthians than just these two that we have, but they have been lost. But there's reference to other letters that we don't have. So uh, we know he's had correspondence with them. And there's something that's heavy on Paul's heart, and he shares this burden with these people that he's told about Jesus Christ. He's told them about the sacrifice that Christ has made so that they can have eternal life with him. And he tells them about the problems in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem it was a tough time to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus had gone in there and kind of turned up the apple cart and had made things tough on the Jewish leaders. And so it's, it's problematic for Jesus. They crucified him. And it's also problematic for his followers. And while they might not have been crucified, they were losing their businesses because the Jewish people would not do business with them. They were losing their jobs because the Jewish employers were under pressure to get this, this uh, Christian sect out of the way. And so they were encouraged by the Jewish leaders to fire them. And so many of them were entering into poverty. So before we get to this text again that we're going to be reading... Paul has encouraged them to take up not just a little offering, but a huge offering for the people, for the Christ followers in Jerusalem. And they have made a commitment to do just that. We, if we read all of uh, chapter 8 and 9, we would get this sense that they have they have made a, a, a pledge, if you will, to make this huge offering to help the Christians in Jerusalem because they're literally in poverty. They're starving. They're losing their homes. They're losing their businesses. And he is encouraging them to help their brothers in Christ. And he has even gone so far to, to brag about the, the church in Corinth, that they are fantastic givers. But then there's problems because many times as Paul would go in and establish a church, there would be Judaizers and others that would come in and raise doubts about Paul's motivation, 
about Paul's theology. And they would say, okay, it's okay if you trust in Christ, but you've got to fulfill all this other Jewish law along with it. They wanted to downplay the grace that God has extended to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And they say, you've got to, you've got to keep the law too. Well, no one was able to keep the law before or since. So they were putting an impossible task on them. And they were also raising doubts about Paul's um, motivation. They were raising doubts about Paul's ethics. And so they were um, saying, you know, this tent maker, I think he's just trying to feather his own nest. Y'all might not ought to give that offering. So he's writing back to them and saying, you need to fulfill this. And you need to fulfill it before I come back so that I don't have to talk about it when I get there. And so he's defending himself some, and then he's also putting uh, the onus on them to fulfill their commitment for this missions offering. And then when we get down to verse 6 of uh, chapter 9, 2 Corinthians, he talks about a cheerful giver. Now, that's, uh, that could be like an oxymoron, okay? That could be something that doesn't make sense. I'm going to give something because it's, it's not like the world's economy. In the world's economy, it's I earn and I keep and I invest and I keep and I keep and I keep and I keep. In God's economy, it is God blesses me and I'm cheerful. I'm hilariously giving this. That's what the word really means in the original language. Hilarious. Now, as good as this church is, and I'm so proud of this church and, and its giving, as good as you are, I have not heard outbursts of laughter during the offering, okay? Uh, so uh, um, I want us to, to think about that, and uh, uh, I've got a little story to tell you here in a little bit that... Uh, um, will help you to understand this. Let's read these passages, verses 6 through 9. The point is this, after he's given all this other about defending his, uh, his theology, defending his ethics, and, uh, he says, and, and urging them to bring this offering and fulfill their commitment. He says, the point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now you see how this could be construed as a uh, name it, claim it, health, wealth, and prosperity theology that I've already warned you against. Okay? God wants to bless us. And he says here that he's going to take care, uh, starting in verse 8. Let me read this again. And God is able to make all grace abound in you. That's not just get by, that's abound. 
All grace abound in you that having all sufficiency in all things, not in some things, in all things, at all times, not just some of the time, but all the time, you may abound in every good work. Again, it's not so that you can wallow in your wealth. It's so you can abound in every good work. Now, there's a, uh, there's a part of this passage that uh, uh, speaks to the agra- agrarian society that they lived in. Every farmer knew that if you went out and sowed just a little bit of seed, you were not going to get a very big harvest. But if you sowed bountifully, if you gave to the soil bountifully, then you could expect the possibility of a bountiful harvest. So he's saying, if you give bountifully, then you're going to reap bountifully. But again, not for your own personal wealth, but so you can be more engaged in financing the kingdom work. That may make a difference in your lifestyle too. But again, this is, this is problematic because um, Jesus, when others would want to follow him, he'd say, look, I, the Son of Man does not even have a, anything to lay its head on. He's got a rock for a pillow. He tells us that if anyone would come after him, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow him. He goes on in that passage to say, if anyone would save their life, he'll lose it. But if anyone loses his life, for God's sake, for Jesus' sake, his, li- his life will be saved. It's a, it's a different kind of economy. Now, there's a, uh, a course that many people have taken in this congregation. Let's put up the Financial Peace University uh, logo there. We've got some folks in our, in our congregation, Mark Messenger and Amber Messenger, and also Melinda Tyler has really gotten hold of this concept and this course of study. If you're struggling with the right handling of finances, I want to encourage you to get with one of those and go through this course. Sometimes uh, they even take people through as individuals or as couples to help them manage the finances, manage the uh, blessings that have been given to them. I I served in another church up in uh, North Austin area uh, for a while, and uh, I need to tell you a little bit about this. Now, some of you, uh, it's a little bit of a long story, and some of you are going to think that Wyatt is just going to squirrel, okay? (laughs) I'll come back to it, all right? It'll get there. But it starts uh, when I was uh, having the privilege to serve a church in Singapore. And while I was over there for three years, Pat was there with me, and uh, we saw a great ministry in that church, in that community. And uh, I had the great privilege of teaching in the Singapore Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, I just had one course for uh, two different semesters. And the students that were there, it was a small class, and they were young people, and they wanted to show great respect to me. 
And so the first time we met, they said, how do we call you? And many of them knew me already because they went to our church. Some of them were interns in our church, but they wanted to know, how do we call you? Are you doctor? Are you professor? And I'm neither. I was an adjunct professor, but that's kind of a mouthful to say. And so I conjured up this thing in my mind real quickly, and I said, you know, I don't have a doctorate. I'm not a professor, but I do have a master's degree. And I tried to get my wife to call me master, but she never will call me master. So you may call me Master Warren. And they loved it. It fit their society. It fit their culture because I was their teacher and I was pouring into their lives. And so they loved it. They, every time they saw me, either in the classroom or at church or out in the community, oh, Master Warren, good to see you, sir. God bless you and God bless what you put your hand to. They were just so respectful as you would expect in an Asian culture of someone of many years more than they had, even then. And then God called us away from Singapore and to a church uh, in Hutto, north of Austin, out east of Round Rock. And uh, we started using Financial Peace University. And it took off. It was so wonderful. But we need to take that down and we need to put the next slide up that says faux pas. Okay? Now, I'm not a scholar of language, but I understand this is a French term that really means false step. Okay? And uh, I, it began being used more uh, in English communication along about this time in my life, I think. I think I may have made this term famous. It's a false step in French, but in English it means something that is totally out of bounds and a, a bad, it's, it's, it's a bad connotation in culture. And so I came upon this situation where this church was having such great success with Financial Peace University and other churches started coming and being a part of our classes. And one of the churches was a, a, a predominantly black church. And they came and they were so excited and they figured out after a couple of times that I was kind of in charge of this ministry and they wanted to show me great respect. And they came to me and they said, how do we call you? Thus, the faux pas. And in the back of my mind, I'm hearing this, this sound that says faux pas, faux pas. Don't, don't do it, don't do it. But then out of my mouth comes this thing, thing that I'd had great joy in at Singapore. I said, you know, I, I, I'm not a doctor. I'm not the lead pastor. Uh, but I do have a master's degree. And... I tried to get my wife to call me master, but she just won't do it. But you, know, you can call me master. And they said, great. And they embraced it. And every time they would come, 
to church, it was Master Wyatt this and Master Wyatt. We love this financial piece of universe. Master Wyatt, it's, t- it's doing so great. And you know what? It was okay because it was kind of family. We can get away with saying things in family that we might not get away with out in public, okay? So they were embracing this Master Wyatt title. Well, months passed. And Hutto had a brand new Home Depot. And I'm there, I'm just rejoicing that there's a Home Depot. And I'm there and there's not a big crowd. But on the other end of the store, I hear this commotion and I'm thinking someone's having a fight because they're so loud and so obnoxious. And then it gets closer and closer and I'm thinking someone's got to be drunk because they're so loud. And I looked up and about halfway across the front of the store is running this very large black lady. And she's got her orange apron on and she's going, Master, Master Wyatt. And I am petrified because I know there's going to be a race riot and I am going to be at the epicenter of it. Okay? It was a terrible faux pas, but you get the benefit because you get to understand how this lady was hilarious in her giving. The Financial Peace University course that she had taken at our church made such a difference in her life. And she came running up and threw the full body hug on me and she said, oh, Master Wyatt, you have been such a blessing to me. Your church has been such a blessing to me because I kept my full-time job that I wasn't making ends meet. And I got a part-time job and I've paid off all my credit cards and I'm about to get my car paid off. And the best thing about it all, Master Wyatt, is I get to give to my church. She was so thankful She was so hilariously motivated that she ran across the whole front end of the Home Depot store to tell me how excited she was that she started doing things God's way with her finances. And the the apex of that was that she was able to give to her church the way she desired it to be. Now, she said, now, I'm not going to do this job forever. I'm glad her supervisor wasn't there. I'm about to get a handle on things, and I'm going to have more time to give to the Lord. I'm going to have more things to do in the church I'm going to maybe start Financial Peace University in our church so we can teach all of our people how to not have two masters, to try to serve Jesus Christ and also serve money because money is a harsh taskmaster. It will wear you out. We need to be in control of that. And the way you get control is you give it over to the Lord. It tells us here, if we sow plentifully, 
we will reap plentifully. There's, uh, there's a lot of good things about giving. But the thing about it is you have to do it. You have to do it. You have to, if you're going to get the full blessing, and it tells us in these passages to sow plentifully and to reap plentifully, but not to our glory, not to our gain, not to our prosperity, but to the kingdom's prosperity. It's so important, but the benefit of it is God's love. God loves a hilarious giver. Okay? And we also get the benefit of God being generous to us as hilarious givers. So we, we come out miles ahead. It's such a blessing. There's been some very smart people about financial management. Financial Peace University is one of those. And they will teach you it's real easy to have your priorities right. You give first fruits to God. So you pay God first. Whatever God's put on your heart, whatever he's impressed upon you, not, not because I'm compelling you, but you pay him the first fruits. And then you pay yourself and put some away in savings. And then you pay your bills. Most of us will have things turned around where they'll put something in savings, they'll pay their bills, and if there's something left over, they'll give it to the Lord. That's not his design. His design is to give first fruits. Some of you are very familiar with this, uh, uh, with this book. It's uh, Discipleship Essentials. It talks about being a disciple in so many different areas. And... Uh, uh, if uh, Jim Chisholm were here, he'd be uh, shouting out a hallelujah on that, but I don't see him. Are you here, Jim? Okay, well, we'll tell him we talked about him. Okay, but it was, most of it was good. In the last chapter of Discipleship Essentials, there's a chapter about how to handle the money, and there's a list at the end of it, Steps to Freedom, and I think they're so vital, I want to read them to you. Step one, give cheerfully. In other words, be hilarious with your giving. Be excited about what God has placed in your possession that you get to give back to him. Step two, give regularly, not haphazardly. Make a decision what you're going to do and follow through. That's, that's what Paul was teaching the church in Corinth, that they needed to follow through on their commitment. Step three, give your first fruits. Don't give what's left over. Don't just give a little bit out of what's left over, but give him the first fruits. That's, that's really the crux of what we had with Cain and Abel. Abel was given the first fruits and Cain was not. Give when it's tight. Pat and I started tithing when I graduated from college. 
It took a little while to get going because I did cram four years of college into five. <laughs> you think it's funny. I don't think she did. <laughs> but when we when I started making my first paycheck as a full-time employee, we started putting a tenth to the kingdom a tenth to our local church. That has since grown to more than a tenth. We get to give our tenth plus, um, plus the special offerings, plus the missions offerings like we're involved in now with the North American Mission Board. Give sacrificially. Remember the widow and her two mites? And how she had given more than all the rest that had given out of their abundance. Give sacrificially. Number six, give a tithe. Now you may be saying, well, just a minute now, that's Old Testament stuff. And you're right, it is Old Testament stuff. But you go back and you read the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5. And you'll see that Jesus takes the Old Testament stuff and he makes it more and more and more intense and more life-changing. So I don't know if us saying the tithe, the 10%, is just Old Testament and we don't need to worry about it. I do think we need to consider that if, uh, if you're being compelled to do that by me, then that's probably not going to be good. I don't know that God's going to especially accept that in the spirit that he wants to. But it's a great place to start. You may have to build up to it. But I want to encourage you that if you're not tithing, if you're not at least tithing, then you're missing out on a blessing. And the last one he gives here is give in faith. Give in faith knowing that your dependence is not on your job, it's not on your bank account. It's not on your home. It's not on your investments. But your faith is in God. That he's going to provide your needs. And if we're going to really live a Christ-centered life, it's going to have tentacles that goes into every aspect of our living. It's going to impact the way we do at work, the way we work with our families, the way we uh, uh, have intimate relationships, the way we do our finances, and on and on and on. Every aspect of our life is impacted because when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we cannot outgive him. I love that Larry said that. There's one more passage that's not going to come up on the screen, but it's the last passage the last verse in our chapter that has our text in it is chapter, uh, chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, verse 15. And Paul says, Thanks be to God for his unexpressible gift. Now, what's that unexpressible gift? That gift is salvation. That gift is that when I die and this body gives it up, or if Jesus comes before that happens, that I'm going to be in glory forever. 
I'm going to walk streets of gold. I'm going to be able to see Jesus face to face. And it's going to be for eternity. I don't think we can pay for that reservation anyway. It's a gift. It's a gift that God has given to us. And what he wants the people that have accepted that gift, that free gift of salvation to do, is to allow the Holy Spirit and God's word to transform us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus didn't. Oh, he did. He gave it all. He gave it all up on the cross. So if you're here today and you have never accepted that free gift, I want today to be the day of your salvation. We've got quite a bit of other stuff to tend to before we close this service out. Got to share a few things with you that are happening. But uh, if you do not know my Lord and Savior as your Lord and Savior, if he is not transforming your life into the image of himself, I want to talk with you. I'll be around here. I'll be out in the foyer. And I'd, I'd count it a great privilege to introduce you to my Lord and Savior. You notice I say Lord and Savior, not just Savior. He's the boss. He rules. And if he's not ruling in your life, Maybe you need to get that straightened out. My prayer, my hope is that no one leaves this place today not knowing my Savior. Dan, if we got a time of reflection, okay, uh, we're going to have, uh, you can stand, and we're going to have a prayer, and then we're going to.